Welcome to AECP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at AECP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist, as well as the executive editor of journals at ASCP. So today I'm really excited because we're doing our first ASCP at 100 podcast, and we're talking about women in pathology and laboratory medicine. And we've got some great guests, and I'll let them introduce themselves. So I'm Dr. Kimberly Sanford. So I started my career as a medical technologist and then went on to become a pathologist. So currently, I'm the medical director of transfusion medicine and the director of undergraduate medical education at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. And I have just completed serving as president of ASCP and I'm currently the immediate past president. Thank you for having me. Hi, I am Nija Messias. I am a renopathologist and associate professor at WashU School of Medicine in St. Louis, where I also am one of the diversity officers for the pathology and immunology department. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tiffany Channer, and I am an assistant administrative lab director and quality manager at a local community hospital in Westchester, New York. I have been a volunteer with ASCP since I was a student member, and I have sat on the Council of Laboratory Professions, where we did a bunch of initiatives for ASCP and the laboratory community. It is an honor to truly be here today. Awesome, you guys. I am super excited to uh, be talking with all of you today. But before we get going, I need to get a little bit of housekeeping out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with their extent of their participation in the activity. Again, thanks for joining us, everyone. As you may know, and as I mentioned kind of in my in my introduction, ASCP is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, which is a really momentous milestone for a professional organization. Our organization is notable in that we were the first medical professional organization to elect a woman as president, uh, Dr. Emma Moss, in 1955. Uh, we thought this would be a great opportunity to discuss women in pathology and laboratory med- medicine. So my first question is a little bit broad. What contributions have women made to these fields? Um, So I'll go ahead and start. So there's no doubt that the laboratory profession, when we talk about the laboratory professionals, have really been dominated by females. But what we see, and this has been one of the challenges, is that even though we may staff the majority of the positions at the bench level, We are not the majority when it comes to the leadership. What we see is that only about 15% of pathology chairs within the United States are actually chaired by females. And so I think this continues to be an area that we need to focus on, focus on for professional development and leadership development for women in this field who dominate, I mean, who again make up the majority 
of laboratory professionals. And that is something that I think ASCP is really focused on with their leadership institute, with the lab management university. There are just a number of different professional development opportunities and leadership opportunities that exist. I also think that there are a number of other outside programs, either within your institution or outside of your institution, such as the um, AAMC, the American uh, Medical Colleges programs for women, early female development, and then mid-level career physician development. So there are a number of opportunities that people, as far as pathologists are concerned, can also link into these types of resources. But that needs to be our focus moving forward is to actually help with the development and ascension of our females on the bench to the leadership positions. Yeah. And I think that in terms of contributions, Kimberly said wonderfully about the workforce, pathologists and uh, lab personnel, the majority is... is, uh, Performed by by uh, females in leadership, definitely there is a gap. But in terms of contributions, also we have to look historically. Uh, there are so many great names in pathology that have made history, and sometimes they are not known because there is not enough visibility. In my field of renal pathology, Dr. Habib, Renee Habib, she basically uh, set up the framework for pediatric pathology. Other fields like Dr. Spitz, it was Sophie Spitz, and we have the Spitz Nevis, who knows this? So we forget to pay attention that uh, we are also scientists, we're people who change the field. We continue doing so. Also, in terms of mentorship, in terms of uh, teaching and setting up examples, I have so many wonderful female pathologists that served to me as role models throughout my career. So um, the females... Um, Women in the field of pathology and laboratory medicine contribute not only with a, a bulk of the workforce, but also as scientists and also as uh, tutors and mentors and teachers and developing an amazing role in education. I agree with all of the sentiments that was um, delivered just a little while ago by my colleagues. Most definitely, women dominate the field. I started in 2007. I got my ACP in 2007. And um, I've been working in the field for approximately 15 years now. And there's so much that I have seen. However, being a woman of color, um, Dr. Sanford, you actually just said that, you know, in terms of management, there is a gap. When it comes on to diversity, that gap is extremendous. It's huge. So we have a lot of work to do. However, I cannot sit here and not pay homage to Dr. Pin. Dr. Pin, she was the first academic chair at Howard University. She was actually highlighted during our ASCP meeting um, in September. And she has definitely made strides within the field. And representation matters. So to see an African-American woman be chair, and she has been a mentor for so many, is definitely inspirational. But that was in 1982 that she was academic chair. Since then, I have, I've researched there have not been many. Um, so we have work to do. Um, it also goes for 
as you reiterate, uh, let me reiterate, uh, Dr. Sanford, where you said at the bench and moving up in terms of management, there's also a lack there as well. That is actually one of my, I would say, goals to work on, where I really, I re- I'm very, very big on mentorship. And that's why I'm a part of ASCP, especially their mentorship program that they have. And that's what I want to do. I want to be an influencer. I definitely want to be someone where I can set a standard where others can follow, be a role model, and open the doors for others to come and succeed within management. You said something, Tiffany, that I'm going to touch on that I think is really important because everybody talks about mentorship, and that's crucial. I think you need mentors of all, you know, different areas that you're trying to develop, not just like you're a work colleague or, you know, a work leader, you know, being involved with ASCP, the mentorship relationships you build have just, I mean, they can just so enrich your life as far as as you progress on your leadership journey. But the other important thing you said, and it gets left out a lot, is sponsorship. You can continue to professionally develop, but if somebody isn't there to help pull you up or open that door, it really, you can't do it all by yourself. And that's where relationship building is so important. You know, the whole opportunity for me to become engaged at ASCP on committees and commissions was because my mentor, who is also, I directly report to her, my division chair, she had an opportunity and she was overwhelmed with another committee appointment. And she said, would you like to do this? And so my first committee appointment was on CheckPath. And that was the door that I needed cracked open to really allow me to engage at ASCP and the method and the ways that I want it to. And so sponsorship is just as equally important as mentorship. And again, building those relationships and networking so that you can have those opportunities available to you. Most definitely. And I tell people all the time, you may not, let's say, get that supervisory position that you have been working so hard for to not be discouraged. I highly encourage them to join professional organizations. I say within these chair, within these communities and commissions that you work on, there's an opportunity to really hone some leadership skills. You may, for instance, let's say public speaking, maybe something that may be daunting for you, but in getting the practice in working on these commissions and um, all of these mentorship opportunities that definitely encourages you to be better. We all want to be better, right? So I highly encourage individuals to use this as a route for professional development, right? Professional development doesn't necessarily have to be on the job. It can be outside of the job, right? Um, networking Mm -hmm. as you said too like networking as well it's so important and ASCP has allowed me to know so many individuals that are like family to me so I definitely encourage people to do this 
Yeah, I think that there is a gradation of model, mentorship, sponsorship, right? And uh, we have to be involved in every single day. And I think that depending on different steps in your career, different places that you are in your career, one is going to be more important than followed by the other. It's funny that you mentioned about uh, opportunities are not only in the job. And this is something that not always we pay attention that there are opportunities in the job. And sometimes doors are even easier to open in other places as well. Most definitely. I try to keep people encouraged. You know, COVID has been a world, you know. I tell some of my past managers that I've now retired. And sometimes they say, oh, you know, I'm thinking about maybe doing a one day, two day. You know, I tell them, enjoy your retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's a different world now. (laughs) You know, of course, they're there to give encouragement. And I tell people as well, in life, you should always be two things. You should always be a mentee and you should always be a mentor. This is beautifully said. Beautifully said. Always, always. You know, I always say Muhammad Ali says, listen, you have one job on this planet. The rent that you pay is to do community service, right? So community service can be in many different ways. For me, what speaks to me is education. So the ASCP Career Ambassador Program, that's my favorite. I go out to different high schools and I teach them about our field and you just see the light bulbs just go off. <laughs> so that's that's wonderful. But in life, like I said, you should always be a mentor and always be a mentee. And, and I really I, do think that it's important to have younger mentors to kind of keep you grounded and not stuck in your ways. Yes, I, I like that point. That's a really good point, Kelly. Um, that's so that's so true. You know, it keeps you up with the times, right? Keeps you relevant. <laughs> yeah, we're so, relevant, yeah. and yeah, you know, like I think all of us have a tendency. I think this is a human tendency to get to a certain point, and the way you think is the way you think, and then you just don't grow or change anymore. And a really great way to not do that is to have a younger mentor. Indeed. So you all talked about some challenges that women in pathology and laboratory medicine have faced, such as a challenge to get to leadership positions, challenge to get recognition for accomplishments, um, and then, of course, additional challenges for women of color in the field. What are some myths surrounding women that may or may not influence these challenges? What are your thoughts on that? One of the myths that I hear all the time this is especially used to justify the gender pay gap is that uh, women don't work as much. I don't know about you, <laughs> but I think I've worked as much as anybody else around me. But this is not only impression or anecdotal. If you look at the data, actually, there is a recent uh, College of American Pathology, the CAP survey of workforce. So women under 50 represented on that survey the majority of the workforce for pathologists. Of course, I'm not going to even mention um, lab personnel because that is even going to be much, much higher. And if you compare the hours, uh, women work full-time as often as men do. And when they work part-time, they work more hours, at least for the data on that survey. So it's, it's just an impression. It's just a myth. And for me, the largest second myth is that, uh, of course, everybody wants to have work-life work balance. 
But people use that to say, oh, women don't value their career as much as their family. And there is also some, some you can look in the literature and you're going to find that the young women, particularly, they are actually, there are some data that shows that they are more concerned with uh, progress in their career, in their academic careers, than men in uh, certain papers that have been uh, done recently. So those are two big myths. We work hard, and guess what? We value our career. So I think that this has been used as an excuse oftentimes to justify some gaps in leadership, the gender pay gap as, as an excuse to not let women advance as, as equally as men do. I'm going to also add another myth, you know, the emotional component and feeling unheard. So I have to say, you know, with COVID, like Tiffany has already touched on, the challenges with COVID with the transfusion medicine field has just been overbearing. And it has been taken an emotional toll on all the laboratory staff. Every field of the laboratory has been touched and impacted. And it has been a source of emotions for everyone. And I have to say, I, in order to not be seen as emotional, because I do feel concerned many days about like our blood supply and our ability to meet the needs of our patients. I've tried to focus more on data-driven statements and providing data. And I recently, you know, with the last shortage with the Omicron variant, I mean, we were the most critical levels I have ever seen the blood supply in. And I really crunched through a number of numbers, put together projections with our chief medical officer, and he and I worked through and created really an excellent, very short uh, PowerPoint to demonstrate the sort of degradation of the inventory that we had at different stages of the entire pandemic and most notably the the last surge. So I think it's very good sometimes to feel like, you know, because it has been so emotionally charged to, and we are all data-driven people. So I think that this has been one way that I could challenge the institution to really, first of all, hear me and also to take what I'm saying and to look at the data that I'm actually presenting. And this is an excellent way to actually illustrate that. I also think that, and I'm just going to digress just a little bit. I think the other thing is that the COVID pandemic has truly, I've been able to really leverage that this entire crisis. So let no good crisis go to waste. And the visibility that transfusion medicine has received as a part of the blood shortages and the concerns that we've had um, have really helped, first of all, increase the visibility of my role and my position within the institution that I would not have had if we did not have this pandemic. So I think that crisis, being able to use a crisis to your advantage can also be a, a great way to promote what your function is and what your role is and to demonstrate your importance in the institution. You know, Dr. Sanford, that is so funny. That's exactly where I am going. 
<laughs> that you actually said that. The myth is laboratories, we just, you know, it's a easy bake oven. You just put the sample on the line, boom, and you get a result and that's it. There's no, there's no science. There's no thought process. There's no cognitive ability of the personnel that is actually taking care of the specimens coming through the laboratory. And this goes from phlebotomists, meaning pathologists as well, right? And it is so disheartening, but it's such a myth. COVID has definitely portrayed to the entire healthcare community how vital clinical laboratory scientists are, laboratory personnel in general, and how we are truly a team. It takes a whole team to care for a patient. And that's what COVID did. So in a way, it kind of debunked the myth. Now, it's not 100%. We still have work to do. (laughs) But you can definitely, I mean, I even see myself, I'm on emails about supply chain with the CFO, (laughs) right? Right? In my mind, I would never, ever think that, (laughs) right? But yes, yes, this is how vital we are. So in a way, COVID has had just a glimmer of positive. So it's so crazy that you brought that up. (laughs) Oh, yeah, definitely in terms of laboratory visibility and actually people knowing what we actually do. Um, Most definitely. Yeah, it's a silver lining. I mean, it's it's hard to kind of say that when there's so much and so much death and grief. But yeah, in terms of the laboratory professions, absolutely. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit, kind of take you back back in the day. What made you decide to enter the field in the first place? I mean, as we've touched on, the field itself isn't terribly visible. It's much more visible than it was, but probably back in the day, whenever we became, you know, went to school for it, it wasn't all that visible. Uh, I went to med tech school in the nineties and it, even then, you know, programs were closing and stuff. We were starting to face our beginning glimmers of a staffing shortage, even back in the nineties. So yeah, let's talk about it. A, what made you guys decide to enter the field? And then during your education, kind of what was the gender split in your classes? I can say in my med tech, in my class, we had 12 students and we had one guy. It was, it was all women, even in school. So uh, yeah, why don't you guys kind of touch on that a little bit? So it's so funny. When I started in the field, I knew nothing of clinical labs. Listen, I, listen I'm a type A personality and I've been like that for years, right? So majority of laboratories are, but anyway, I digress. So with that, I was like, I'm going to become a biochemist and I am going to make makeup for Mac. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. And my university, Stony Brook University, had a funneling program with Estee Lauder. I, I knew it. That's what's going to happen. And then organic chemistry came along and said, hold up, you sure? And I took my first exam and I studied for it. I studied for it and I did not do well. And I was like, what am I going to do with my life? (laughs) Yeah, the existential crisis, right? Oh, you have no idea. Heart palpitations. It was was bad. (laughs) But God always shows the light. Strange enough, I'm walking on campus and I'm walking through an academic fair and I don't even know it. And it was a professor 
that was sitting at the table for CLS. <laughs> I guess I had the look of doom on my face. And she said, are you okay? And I said, no. And I started wailing. Oh. <laughs> and she said, what's wrong? And I told her, I'm going to have to drop out of college and become a plumber because nobody cares who, who fixed your toilet. <laughs> because this is not going to work. <laughs> and she laughed and said, breathe, breathe. And she said, what's your major? And I told her. And she said, have you ever heard about clinical laboratory science? And I was like, hmm. and I swear the tears dried up. I said, you guys write me all the time. You get campus mail. And I ignore it. What you got? <laughs> <laughs> and she went into detail. Oh, you can work for the CDC, NIH. You can have four or five jobs if you want. It's $50,000 straight out of school. I went to my dorm. And I researched and she said, come to our informational session next week. And I said, I'm there. I'm there. And I went to the laboratory and I saw the students in their lab coats and they were shrinking plates and they were looking at the microscope and they showed me Giardia and it was moving. And since then, I've been sold. I was like, so you, it's like, you're the doctor. And he's like, yes, that's exactly what it is. And <laughs> I have been in this field since. So it's luck for me, to be honest. And that's the problem, right? I don't, I don't think that it should be luck. You know, it should, everybody should know about clinical labs. You go to the doctor all the time. The doctor's always drawing blood from you. Where do you think it goes? Into a blank box? <laughs> right? We need to be more visible, but I digress. But yes, that's my story. How about you, Nidia? How did you get into the field? My story is not as uh, funny, but it's a story. It's, it's a different pathway. I'm, I'm originally from Brazil, and I'm going to say that it was a mixture of nature and nurture. My grandpa, grandpa was a histotech. So honestly, my first memories are from the lab. I remember. Walking and walking to the lab and smelling the smells, all the smells. After today, I go into a lab and they smell the smells. I still feel like I'm home, you know. So the lab has been my home. My mother, she turned to be a pharmacist. And pharmacists in Brazil, they do a lot of uh, lab work as well. So she actually owned a clinical pathology lab. When I went to pathology, I think it was surprised to nobody but me <laughs> that I chose that field. Of course, uh, during medical school, I was blessed of having wonderful mentors in the pathology field, and, and that always uh, that made a big impression on on my decision as well. So it was um, I don't know if it was the genes or it was what I was used to, but pathology always felt like being home. Every time today, when I walk to the lab, it's like I'm home, no matter in which country I am. That's such a great sentiment. Yeah. Yeah, I've been off the bench now for, gosh, almost 12 years or something. And well, at least 10. And uh, yeah, every once in a while, I, I get the urge just to, you know, put on my closed toed shoes and go into a lab. <laughs> you can work PRN, I'm sure, at a local lab. <laughs> I'm dead certain that, that that they would welcome me with open arms. <laughs> open, open arms. <laughs> but I feel that same way when I go into a blood bank. Blood bank is my love. Everybody will tell you Tiffany's a blood baker. So I tell even all my texts, I will come and shake those tubes with you. <laughs> so so I, I share your sentiment. How about you, Kim? How'd you get into the field? 
So I also had an early exposure to clinical laboratory scientists, and this is why I really feel like the career ambassador program is so important. So the only woman in my extended family had a BS degree in medical technology, and she was a medical technologist, and she would talk to me about her job from, you know, literally as early as I can think back, she would talk about her job. And my father was actually a paralyzed veteran, and I had seen the care that nurses had to give to someone, you know, with his condition. And so I knew that nursing was not something that I wanted to do. I could, you know, do what I needed to do for my father, but that would not be something that I could do as a lifetime or a career. So the laboratory combined that desire to be in healthcare with the medicine, with the laboratory. And I even remember being in elementary school and dressing up in my mom's white terry cloth bathrobe for, you know, career day. And I told everybody I was going to be a medical technologist because that's what we were called back then. I set out with a plan and never deviated from that plan at 18. I called laboratories and I became a phlebotomist. And then um, I went on to med tech school and worked for the next six and a half years until I went back to medical school. So I just think the exposure that is required for people to understand that this is a field that you can have an entire career with. And like Tiffany said, there's so many avenues that you can use this career in or this skill set that you acquire in the CLS programs. I mean, they're just, it's, they're amazing programs and the training that you receive can be so versatile for whatever path you want to take in the laboratory. Kelly, you actually asked about stats, right? So Um, In terms of my program, there were 26 of us, and we had four males. So when looking at today's laboratory workforce, is there something that still needs to change to make the laboratory environment more gender equal? Like, are there any specific initiatives that may contribute to better work conditions, empowerment for in the lab? I will just say, you know, with all the staffing challenges that we're experiencing right now, we have a number of almost in our entire older workforce has decided to retire. So now we have a group of uh, technologists that are all very young. Um, Many of them are less than five years out. Many of them are starting young families. And my manager and I actually had a conversation yesterday about increasing the flexibility with the shifts for our technologists and, you know, thinking about how duties have been performed typically on the day shift. There are duties that can be performed all throughout the day, you know, QC And QC of different instruments and and equipment doesn't have to be done between 7 and 3.30. And I'm just really trying to continue to promote these sort of flexible work hours and flexible shifts during the week. Like we don't have enough coverage on the weekends. 
So now what some of our staff are doing is working two weekends back to back, but then taking off time during the week, which then allows them to attend, you know, family activities, you know, taking, transporting children to different after school activities. So I really think, you know, we have to keep pushing to think outside of the box, to keep taking into consideration that people want to have careers and they want to have jobs, but they also don't want to miss out on everything that's important to them in life. So I think that's one of the other challenges that we still are going to have in laboratory medicine. In this way, I think that comes back to our first point that you pointed out about leadership. You have this vision of leadership that is a vision that encompasses there's differences in gender and what makes a laboratory with more opportunities for women. To have this kind of a vision, you have to have leaders, to have, you have to have women in the leadership as well, taking part of the conversation. So to have improvements in pathology for women, in pathology and lab medicine, we have to have women in the leadership. And uh, we cannot feel comfortable with inequalities. That, that's the other thing. We cannot feel comfortable with the gender gap, A, which is present for pathologists and for lab staff as well, equally in some fields, actually disproportionately. So those are areas that need improvement, containing also any source of harassment in the lab towards women, either sexual harassment or gender harassment or harassment in any form. Is something that needs to be a starting point that uh, we don't even need to think about it. That is the very basic baseline. But it still is a problem and it still exists and it's completely inadmissible. Most definitely. You know, of course, diversity and inclusion, you know, it's kind of like the hot topic right now. However, it's a topic that really needs to be spoken about, right? Um, it's kind of like the elephant in the room. Uh, we're in 2022, and we're still having these conversations. I'm very happy that institutions have really recognized this. So they have initiatives around diversity and inclusion. Even here at my local hospital, um, it's Black History Month, and it's on every single TV screen, plasma screen throughout the institution. And there's different activities that are taking place to celebrate. And the same thing goes for the other, the Asian community within Lunar New Year. They had all of those celebrations and things of that nature. So that's great. Also, there are some learning activities for the staff so that they can be educated on different ethnicities and races and things of that nature. However, within the laboratory, as we said before, in terms of management, we need to see more diverse, more diverse, not just in terms of ethnicity, but also in terms of gender, right? There have been a few laboratory directors that I've met that are male. In terms of African-Americans, I've only met one in my whole career. So we have some work to do. But having the conversation is step one. You bring up a good point. So I kind of want to talk about the diversity of the field overall. I mean, Tiffany, you're, you're a relatively new professional. I was in the field about a decade before you. Nydia and Kimberly have been in the field longer than that. So 
kind of want to get a sense for how you guys feel about how how the laboratory medicine and pathology fields, how the diversity levels have changed over the course of your career. Uh, Nidia, do you want to kick us off? Sure. And in terms of gender, it has definitely improved because there, there are more women going into pathology. So every year we have about half a percent increase of the, the number of pathologists in practice that are female. In terms of diversity in general, you're absolutely right, Tiffany. We have a lot, a, a much larger gap to make up for, especially between African-Americans. I mean, if you compare the populations, about 13% African-Americans in, in, in medicine, it goes for about 5%. In pathology, as pathologists, it rovers around 2%. So we have a large gap. And one of the problems that also is kind of the vicious circle, right? We don't have enough mass on diversity on the field right now. So how are you going to attract people if they see a field that they're not diverse to start with? So one likes what one sees as oneself, right? So if you look at the field and you don't see the people there to be your models, to be your mentors and to be your sponsors, how encouraged are you to be applying to the field? So we have to find not just the efforts, but efforts that create a critical mass to close this gap. And there are a lot of initiatives, but what initiatives are working? Which ones we should propagate and which ones we're not? Conversation is where it starts, and I'm happy to have in the conversation here today. But conversations alone are not going to make this change. We have to have programs that have the intention of giving the same opportunities to everyone and recognizing that people don't start on the same level. So the same opportunities they have to be, they have to also taking into account that people are different and they are going to have different starting points. So making sure that everybody, when you give the opportunity, everybody starts on the same starting points. So I'll just also say that, you know, as far as diversity that I've seen in the few decades that I've been in the lab, when I think back to my graduating class in 1991, literally it was one male, like you mentioned, uh, I think we were had, I want to say 18 people in our class with one male probably about 20% of the class was minority representing all different types of ethnicities. Now we are thankfully have our staff or our faculty at the clinical laboratory sciences program have really created a pipeline with our academic institution down the street, which is still all part of the same organization, Virginia Commonwealth University. And they've done an outstanding job of going down to the academic campus, talking to them about laboratory medicine, so that they've been able to expand to up to 35 students per year. Of course, our hospital needs double, more than double than that to fill all the vacancies, but they've done an excellent job in recruiting and the diversity that I'm seeing now in our students who then we try to hire has been just a complete change in the makeup of our laboratory. And I just think it's incredibly refreshing. And um, even though I think some people, some students may be motivated 
um, by the CLS program to sort of use it as a stepping stone, like, oh, I'm just going to use this to become a pathologist assistant or a physician assistant or a doctor or whatever. You know, I always say to those students, work in the lab first, because you will need to apply what you've learned to make it all make sense before you decide what your next step is. And many people, it's it's fascinating, the ones that do, there are those that who had plans to move on, but then decided this was where they wanted to spend their career and build a career. And so I just think the pipeline that we've created because of the proximity with our academic campus has really helped build and fill that pipeline for students of all backgrounds all ethnicities. And uh, it's been wonderful to see this kind of change. That is really encouraging. And, and like you said, Tiffany, it's obviously we have more work to do, but these DEI initiatives that have been kind of in the pipeline for the last five years or so, it's really good to hear that, that it's bearing fruit. Yes, I'll definitely say so. You know, of course, in my current role, I do quite a few interviews. And I will tell you that it's becoming way more diverse, way more. That's um, awesome. But also it's location too, because I am <laughs> in New York. So we have, I have the diversity here, right? But down in Florida where I worked for a few years, there wasn't as much. So that's why I highly, highly encourage all of my, all of my colleagues, especially those of color. Please make it your duty to go out and do presentations about the field that you represent. Because I've had little girls and boys come up to me in my lab coat and say, I want to be like you one day. That's powerful. Representation matters. Absolutely. I highly encourage it. Highly encourage it. So we talked a lot about kind of the gender dichotomy in today's episode, right? We're talking about male, female, but there are a lot of people who don't fall into those two categories. So I wanted to ask, what can we do to make the laboratory work environment more inclusive towards gender non-conforming staff, but then also to patients? First step probably is disencourage any kind of prejudice on the workplace workplace. So if we have policies in place, those are very important. And if those policies go through towards any kind of discrimination against women, against black people, against minorities, and against gender non-conforming people as well. So having the policies and follow through with those policies are the very first step. Uh, Second, how to create us the culture of acceptance and inclusion, which are two different things. So making it natural to see those people as equal as anyone else, either lab personnel and as the patients. I've heard some some patients talking about even small signs make a difference for us to feel included. So having even a banner or something that indicates that here we are a place that does not discriminate in a place that receives you as equal is very important. So just sometimes just having a flag is going to be a a big difference. This is not only one step. 
but a culture of acceptance and inclusion is very important. And I think that, that this this is built over time. It's not something that shows up from one day to the other, but it has come top down and bottom up as well. I agree with that. It's all about the culture and policy. It's what's going to save you, right? We are living in times where everybody wants to be accepted and they should be accepted, right? You know, this, it's the little things. So like, for instance, in LinkedIn, right? Now they have pronouns and you, she, her, and things. And I will tell you, it's little things like that that's in your signature that gives the indication to individuals of you understand, right? You accept me for who I am, right? And I think that's what we have to keep in mind. It doesn't have to be something huge. Something huge is great, right? But it can be just a small, minute modification that you've made just in your signature will definitely tell individuals that you are conscious of the times and people that we deal with. Yeah, I totally agree. I do think the culture of your workplace from the top all the way down makes all the difference. And I also think it's important about the patients that you provide care to. So, you know, here at VCU, we have, for instance, a transgender pregnancy clinic. That is a service that I'm certain many places don't have. So again, it's what kind of recognition, what kind of acknowledgement, what kind of services, and then what are the policies, like was already mentioned, for what's acceptable culture-wise in your workplace. So I think all of these are just tremendously important. And again, I think working in an urban, even though we're a only a medium-sized city. We're not New York City. But, you know, I do think that there are advantages. I'm certain that in rural areas, this may not be the case all the time. So I do think that as a country, we still have a long ways to go. I kind of want to transition. This is, I think this is a a good transition to make because we talked a lot about how the field has been, changes that are happening have happened fairly rapidly in the last decade or so. Got to tie in the anniversary. Since this is ASCP's 100th anniversary, I want to ask you guys, where do you think the field's going over the next 100 years? Well, I will just start. Since I am in transfusion medicine, one area or one field that I'm really excited about is more of the therapeutic pathology. And so I'm involved in apheresis procedures where we are collecting blood products or cellular products that can then be engineered and reinfused to patients in order to fight malignancies. You know, it started with lymphoma and now we have protocols for treatment for solid tumors. I'm just so amazed at how progressive treatments we've seen in the last few years. And I'm just really excited to see where this this will go because I think this is revolutionizing the way we look at cancer, the way we treat different malignancies. And and I'm just think we're in a great field to be able to assist not just with diagnosis, but also treatment. 
I think that's an excellent point. And uh, I would also add, I'm very excited about digital pathology and the role it's going to have in the future, especially coming from a more of an atomic side of pathology. I'm really looking forward to what we're going to be able to see in image analysis and things that we're not able to see right now that maybe the computer and artificial intelligence are going to be able to come with parameters. We don't have the understanding of certain things that might be there and maybe AI is going to be able to interfere with. This is in terms of the field. And what I would also hope is that we're going to be, since this is the theme, that we're going to be working on a much more equitable field, uh, that is going to be a more diverse field, that is going to be a field that not only is more diverse, but is also more inclusive. And people are treated equally. It's not only that I want to see different faces, I want to see different faces, and I want them to be treated equally and with respect. These are great points. Both of you ladies are wonderful. I'm so honored to be on this panel with you. You know, I think of when I first started to now, I mean, not even before I even started in the field, I remember people telling me about my mouth pipetting, right? And I used to be grossed out by that. And now I look at automation as quantum microbiology, where the technologist doesn't even have to touch the plate, right? The next hundred years, we will be in spaceships somewhere. I'm joking, but I don't know what's coming, but I'm here for it. I know that the group that we have of scientists, we're innovative. And I'm just here to ride the ride. You know, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what comes next. However, in terms of the aspects that we spoke of, in terms of diversity, inclusion, and equity, we need to work on those those facets. We're great in terms of technology, but we need to do some internal work. And when we do that, we definitely... We pr- when you promote diversity, you also promote diverse thoughts, right? Diverse thoughts. So if you have diverse thoughts, then you'll be cutting edge compared to other countries. We have to be a part of that group. So my final question for you three is, what advice would you give to women either entering the field today or already in the field, what advice would you give them? I am a new mom. My lovely son is 14 months old and he's dunking basketballs. All right. So happy for him. I am a woman of color in leadership. So I have many hats. (laughs) I have many hats. I have many jobs. When I leave, then here comes the mom job, right? And there are many women that are in the field that feel my, that share my sentiments. So my advice would be all individuals who want to progress in terms of leadership and being a woman and want to have a family, you can have it all. You can. Your tribe is most important. You cannot do it by yourself. I will tell you that now. You may think you're superwoman, but you're not. So you have to have tribe to definitely help to facilitate your dreams and aspirations. However, I'm here to tell you that you can as a woman. That's number one. Number two, be brave. Be brave. 
at the same time, be vulnerable. Vulnerability also opens you up to new thoughts and new ideas, right? So those are the two pieces of advice that I would give women. And I'm going to add to this that taking advantage of opportunities. And one of my favorite phrases is, luck is when opportunity meets preparedness. And so being prepared for when those opportunities arrive really will help with your success, again, on your career journey. And sometimes you think you may have it all plotted out and an opportunity comes along and it may change the way you think about things and the trajectory that you were on. So that's my advice. For me, I would advise for everybody who is a woman young that is listening is first ditch the imposter syndrome. You're there because you deserve to be there. You're much better than what you think you are, and you're much better than what you're going to hear people telling you are. So I never gave anyone a position in an interview that was not worth it. So you're there because you deserve to be there. Second one is that you should speak up. You are the one who knows your own needs and your own wants. So speak up. Speak up for yourself. Say what you want. Don't be afraid to ask. Women are notoriously known for not knowing how to ask. So ask. If you want it, you go and ask. Advocate for yourself and advocate for others. Probably some of my biggest regrets in life is when I didn't speak up when I should. Maybe it never led me to the best places when I speak up. But I know that every time I didn't speak up when I should, I regret to this day. And uh, this is something that I wish you wouldn't have to go through. I'm so glad I asked this question at the end because I feel like it's such a fantastic, empowering ending to really a great conversation with you three. And it was just wonderful to kick off our podcast series on the ACP 100 celebration with you three. So thank you so much for joining us today. And to our listeners, as always, you can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast aggregator so you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ACP store on our website at www.acp.org.